Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Scott, and I've been here for two weeks, and it's been a fun two weeks, I'll say that. We've had a great time um, as a family getting more and more uh, acquainted with the community, with the people here, and it's been a whole lot of fun for us. We've been, I personally have been really enjoying getting to know the staff here. There's a really fantastic team and getting to know their heart and um, how they do what they do and why they do what they do. It's been really fun for me. As a family, we've been able to experience a couple of different new things and enjoy this area. And it's also been fun because, you know, we've, through social media, we've connected with a number of you, um, even in this last month or two, but now we get to see faces and make those connections, and that's really fun too. Uh, This past week, I got to go golfing for the first time here in the Tri-Cities, which was was good. And uh, the best part about it is I didn't kill anyone. And um, outside of just a few broken branches, there were no major casualties on the course. So I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> it was a good day for me on the golf course. Um, other firsts for me was uh, something that was new that I've never experienced in any place that I've ever lived. And it was so new and so surprising. I took a picture so I, so I could show you. This past week, I had a soda can in my car. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you can see this, but it's a can, it's a LaCroix, and it was in my car, and it was there all day long. And in the evening when I saw, and I came out uh, to my car, the, the lid had just popped, I mean, it boiled over, and it exploded in my car. Now, that is, I've been in places where a can, a soda can has frozen and exploded, but I've never been in a place where it's been so hot, it boils and explodes. So, welcome to the Tri-Cities, I guess, Right. So that was a new experience for me, and, um, and I'm sure there's lots more new experiences, which we're looking forward to and just learning along the way. But today I am really excited because I get to continue a series that we've started as a church at the beginning of the summer called Conversations with Jesus, in which we've been looking at different conversations that Jesus has with a variety of people. And we get to kind of eavesdrop and listen in and hear what it is that Jesus is saying, and we get to benefit from that And today we're going to take a look at uh, Jesus and his conversation with the disciples. And it's a conversation that Jesus has with the disciples right after they had an argument over who's the greatest. Not that we would ever have that kind of an argument or discussion, but I still think we can learn a lot by listening to Jesus as he talks with them and really helps them understand and us understand the true measure of greatness. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. We have it printed for you on your chair, the passage that we're going to be looking at, as well as some notes if you're a note taker. But what I'd like to do is read it so we can familiarize ourselves with this um, conversation. Then we'll come back and we'll talk about it together. But beginning in verse 33, Mark chapter 9, this is what it says. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, John said, Squirrel, 
Okay, sorry. He doesn't say squirrel here, but if you're following along in this conversation, all of a sudden John makes this comment, and it just feels like it's in left field. And so we'll talk about it and how it all ties together here in just a moment, but it is one of those squirrel moments in, uh, in, in this passage. Teacher just said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourself and be at peace with each other. Okay, looking back at verse 33, it helps us understand where they're coming from. Let's look at it together. It says this, they came to Capernaum, the the, they is the disciples in Jesus. They'd just been working their way through Galilee, and now they're into Capernaum. And it's here that they stop at a house. Some people believe that it's Peter's house. We don't know for sure, but he stops at a house here in Capernaum. And it says this, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So Jesus asks a very simple question. And he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way here? Now, their response, silence. Let's look at it in verse 34. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. All of a sudden, their conversation doesn't seem to be right in Jesus' presence. You ever had one of those moments? You're like, oh, we were just talking about it. I don't think that would be... a conversation I'd want to have with Jesus right there. That's kind of basically how they're feeling. And so they are like, we, no one wants to talk. They're silent. They're embarrassed um, because they were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, Jesus is aware of that and he's going to talk to them about it. But the question is, well, why were they arguing about who's the greatest? What brought them to, what got them going on who's the greatest and debating that? And I think really by the context um, it, it has to do with the transfiguration. Be, in, in Mark chapter 9, it begins with Jesus inviting Peter, James, and John to go with him up to a high mountain. And it's on this high mountain that they experience Jesus being transfigured. That is, they get a glimpse of his radiant and divine glory. They get a picture of, of Jesus' divine nature. And so this is an incredible moment for them. And after this moment, after this experience, they walk back down the hill, and on the way, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, don't tell anyone what you experienced today. Now, I believe that Peter, James, and John didn't tell anyone what they experienced at that time. But there is a way in which we can keep a secret and still make everyone beg to know what went on. So I can picture Peter, James, and John, you know, getting back together with the disciples and them saying to to them, so guys, what happened up there? What happened up on the mountain? And them saying, well, you know, it's kind of some top secret stuff. 
You know, we could tell you, but then we'd have to kill you, kind of a thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, you know, Jesus, sorry guys, Jesus told us that we can't tell what happened. Um, maybe someday we'll be able to tell you, but you know, right now, you ordinary disciples, you're just not ready for it yet. You, you feel what's going on there, and you just feel the, the tension rising, and all of a sudden the argument happens. Who's the greatest? They start to fight. They start to argue, and, and Jesus is aware of that, and so um, he then begins to have a conversation with them about it, and this is what we see happening next. It says this, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, Jesus is going to begin to teach on the true nature of greatness. And this is very helpful for us. And, but before we focus in on what Jesus does say, um, what I want you to also hear is what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus does not rebuke them for wanting to be great. Jesus does not rebuke them for having ambition. That's normal and natural, by the way. All of us have a desire to be great, to have ambition, and I'm not just talking about your secret desire to be the next American Idol. And we all maybe have some of that going on too. But what he is talking about is he's saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with having a certain level of ambition. All of us want to be great when it comes to our relationships. All of us want to be great when it comes to our marriage, to our family, at work, with sports, at hobby. Having ambition, wanting to be great is not a bad thing. That's normal, natural desire. In fact, some of us need a little bit more ambition in some areas of our life. So Jesus does not rebuke them for that, but he does redirect them and help them understand here's the true measure of greatness. And in this passage, he's going to give us three different characteristics, three different marks of what it looks like to be great as Jesus defines it. And so what I want to do is help you see those different marks, those characteristics of greatness as Jesus defines it. So going back to this verse, it says this. Go, sorry, going back to verse 35, this is where he begins his teaching. He calls them together. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So Jesus begins with a very countercultural idea, something that's very different for our, um, our natural bent. He says, if you want to be first, that is, you want to be great, that's awesome, but you need to be last. You're like, wait, that's different. In our world, in our society, in our natural tendency, if we want to be first, what do we do? We push and shove until we get to the top. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If you, you need to be a servant of all. If you want to be first, you need to be last. That is, instead of racing to get to the front of the line, you race to get to the back of the line so that others go first. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. It's, it, it's blowing their mind and it's challenging for us. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. This is the statement that Jesus makes to them. But then after telling them, okay, this is what greatness looks like, being a servant of all, being a servant leader, then he goes on and he gives them an object lesson. I'll show you here what it says in verse 36. It says, he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them. So he grabs the child. We think, you know, some people, again, they think this is Peter's home. Maybe this is Peter's son, a child. We don't know. He takes the child, pulls, pulls the child in his arms, and he says to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So the question is, okay, Jesus has just been talking about being a, a servant of all. And that if you want to be first, you need to be last. And again, conceptually, we can kind of rally around this, this idea of, of being a servant. And we know that, yeah, that is a mark of greatness. 
If you want to be good in business, it's good to be a servant. If you want to do well in your marriage, you need to be a servant leader. If you want to do well in your family, be a servant leader. We get that. Why the child, Jesus? Why, why are you bringing a child as the object lesson for serving? And again, it's going back to verse 35 because Jesus says we need to be a servant of what? Who? All. Okay, circle, underline, highlight, all. Jesus says we need to be a servant of all. And he's using a child to help them understand all means all, even the ones we overlook, even the ones we dismiss, even the ones that don't do anything to elevate our status or our influence or we get anything back from, those are the ones we're also supposed to serve. And this is challenging for us, isn't it? Because what we want to do is pick and choose who we want to serve. And when we're strategic, we're thinking, I will serve that person because I might get a, you know, something back in return. Or I will go and care for this person because it'll elevate my status a little bit. Or if in business, I network with this person because I'm all of a sudden my influence grows. I'll serve you, but we're still thinking about ourselves. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 stop that way of thinking. I want you to serve all, the least, the last, and the lost. The principle that I want you to see is this, that we need to look for ways to love and serve all people. All people. And the fact that he's using a child helps us understand he means all. All means all. I love how William Barclay um, comments and writes about this uh, scenario. This is what he writes um, about this passage. He says, now a child has no influence at all. A child cannot advance a man's career nor enhance a man's prestige. A child cannot give us things. It's the other way around. A child needs things. A child must have things done for him. And so Jesus is saying, if a man welcomes the poor, ordinary people, the people who have no influence and no wealth and no power, the people who need things done for them, then he's welcoming me. And more than that, he's welcoming God. Isn't that well stated? It's, it's, it's challenging for us. Because again, we want to oftentimes serve certain people and not others. And when you see a child, Jesus says, does not look overlook children. And in fact, Jesus is so radical at his time. You know, in a culture where uh, women and children were, had a lower status than men, and it actually still in many places still that's the case, but Jesus was so radical in his time. I mean, he listened to women, he, he encouraged them, he elevated them, and with children, when everyone was trying to push the children away, he had a special place for them, he, he gave them special attention. And it's not just women and children, but it's also the outcasts, the worst of society, like we talked about last week with Zacchaeus, that Jesus was willing to go and, and spend time at the home of a tax collector, a traitor. Jesus was so countercultural, so radical, and he's demonstrating for us that we're to love all people, and all truly means all. The challenge for us then is to say, who is it that we um, are missing? See, Jesus doesn't overlook people, he doesn't dismiss people, but who is it that we are? Jesus is calling us forward, he's calling us to love and to serve all people. That means that Jesus is calling us to love and to serve um, the people who um, look different from us, who dress different from us, that act different from us. He's calling us as a church to welcome young people here who have hats on and who have piercings and tattoos. 
He's calling us as a church to, um, to reach out to the people who we work with. And they drive us nuts because they have different religious views or political views or moral views. But he's calling us to reach out and serve them. He's calling us to reach out to our neighbors, to invite our gay neighbor over for a meal or to spend time with them in their home. He's inviting us to reach out to the disadvantaged children. He's inviting us to reach out and, and, and reach out to the refugees in our community. Jesus is saying the people who are overlooked, the people that are dismissed, the people who don't, aren't doing anything to elevate your status, I still want you to serve all people. It's not a picking and choosing. This is the power of his statement. This is the mark and the measure of true greatness that we would look for ways to love and serve all people. But then he, um, this is when now the, the kind of the, the conversation takes a turn, but I'll show you how Jesus brings it back here in just a moment. Um, then after hearing this, it says this, teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. So Jesus has a child, he's making this beautiful picture, and all of a sudden John's like, wait a minute. And he, I think it's because he hears, you know, in my name, that when Jesus was talking about that, that he's like, I had a, you know, I remember something. Just recently, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and so we told him to stop. And so this is the scenario that, G, that John brings up. Now, to just kind of step back for a moment and understand, well, why would they tell him to stop if he's driving out demons, if he's helping people, people are hurting that are enslaved? Why would he tell him to stop? Well, you, understand, you need to understand by the context that just before this, the disciples had encountered a demon and they couldn't cast it out. They couldn't do it. And so they were a little embarrassed. It was, it was, a, it was a kind of a low moment for them. And so now they see someone who is being successful, who's not one of them. And so what do they do? They shut them down. Why? What's going on in their hearts? What's coming up after their embarrassing moment? Someone else is being successful, not part of our group. Jealousy. They're envious. They're jealous of someone else being successful. They're jealous of the work that God is doing through them and, not, and, and someone else and not them, and so they shut it down. But listen to how Jesus responds in the following verse. It says this, Do not stop, Jesus, stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Then he says, For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Verse 40, Whoever is not against us is for us. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, Listen, guys, they're on our team. They're on our team. If they're using my name, they're expressing faith in who I am and my power. They're on our team. He's saying to them what coaches have been saying to teams for ages. For the players on their team, what are the coaches constantly shouting? You're on the same team. Work together. Right? And there's one person who's trying to elevate their stats and another person who's all about, you know, hogging the ball. The coach is saying, work together. When we win, we all win. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Listen, guys. Don't get jealous. Don't be envious. Don't be trying to say, well, they're, not, you know, they're, they're making, we're feeling bad because they're doing better and I'm not. And hey, listen, it, we're all on the same team. That's what Jesus is trying to help them understand. And he's trying to help them get that. So the principle that I want you to see here is this, that in terms of uh, greatness, he's saying this, a, a person who's great in, in Jesus, Jesus finds it, is someone who longs for the advancement of God's kingdom and not your own. Someone who longs for the kingdom of God's advancement and not your own. And this is a challenging thing for us because it's possible for any one of us in, in terms of greatness is we want to be the star. 
We want to be the one that gets the attention, the recognition, that we want to be the one that God's greatly using. And when someone else God's using, we start to get jealous. We start to get envious. And so it's a challenge. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have a kingdom mindset, to long for the advancement of God's kingdom and not your own. It reminded me as I was studying this passage this past week of a book that I read a number of years ago called Good to Great. It's a, a book that's really, it's a business classic, and it's written by a guy named Jim Collins. It's been around a long time, but really it's a book where he uh, does a study. He researches companies, businesses that were good and somehow made the jump to being great. They outperformed their competitors and they, they outperformed in, in, in extraordinary ways for an extended period of time. And really what he wanted to do is find out why is it that these companies make this jump, this transition from being a good company to a great company? What are the things that are true about those companies? And one of the things that he identifies is what he calls um, level five leadership. That in those companies, within that, within that transition time, when they go from good to great, there's what he called level five leadership. And so what I want to do is just kind of sh- point out kind of what he kind of learned from his uh, research, really, which, which is what, um, what, what Jesus is talking about here. It says this, we were not looking for level five or anything like it. Our original question was, can a good company become great? And if so, How? In fact, I gave the research teams explicit instructions to downplay the role of the top executives in the analysis of this question so we wouldn't slip into the simplistic credit the leader or blame the leader thinking that is so common today. But level five found us. Over the course of the study, research teams kept saying we can't ignore the top executives even when we want to. There is something consistently unusual about them. I would push back again, arguing. The comparison companies also had leaders, so what's different here? Back and forth, the the debate raged. Finally, as should always be the case, the data won. The executives at companies that went from good to great and sustained that performance over 15 years or more were all cut from the same cloth, one remarkably different from that which produced executives um, in, at the comparison companies in our study. So he's doing this study, and this is what's popping out. There's this unique characteristic of the top executives of these companies that went from good to great. They're all different, and they're different compared to all the other companies that stayed at that, 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 uh, that comparison level. And so the question is, what did he discover? What did he discover? This is what he discovered. Our discovery of level five leadership is counterintuitive. Indeed, it's countercultural. Hmm. Kind of like Jesus saying, oh, if you want to be first, you need to be last. That's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? (laughs) That's a little countercultural. Oh, good, Jim. Glad you figured this out. Okay, here we go. He goes on to say this. People generally assume that transforming companies from good to great requires a larger-than-life leaders, big personalities like Iacocca, Dunlap, Welch, Galt, and who make headlines and become celebrities. But level five leaders channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that level five leaders have no ego or self-interest. Instead, they are incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution and not themselves. See, Jim Collins came to a conclusion that Jesus had been telling his disciples thousands of years earlier. Now, Jim didn't come to me for, you know, advice on, on that, and I probably would have pointed him to Jesus' teaching, but he didn't come to me. It would have saved him a little time and research. But Jesus has been saying this a long time ago. 
Listen, if, if, if you want to be a great, it's, not, it's putting your ego aside, not your kingdom, but saying, what's the mission? What's the greater mission in putting all of your attention, all of your focus to say, how can everyone benefit in terms of what we're trying to accomplish? And in this case, Jesus is saying to them, listen, guys, it's not about who's doing it, who's better, who's, who's at the top. It's about saying, God, can your kingdom advance? And when we recognize you're on my team, you're on my team, I can celebrate that and I can support it and I can say, yes, God's kingdom is moving forward and not my own. But it means we set our egos aside. It means we stop and say, okay, I don't need the recognition. I want God to get the recognition. I want his church to grow. I want people all around to know who he is. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And the question is, well, how do we have that kind of a mindset? How do we grow in a kingdom mindset? And so there's three, char- three, three things that come to my mind. When I think of people who are kingdom-minded, here's three characteristics of the people that, that I think um, have this um, as a part of their orientation. The first one is this, the kingdom-minded people sacrifice for the benefit of others. The kingdom-minded people sacrifice for the benefit of others. And many people here in this church, you do that. You sacrifice for the benefit of others. You have a kingdom mindset that says, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice to serve so that others can grow, so that God's kingdom can expand. If you're here and you're a life group leader, I want to say thank you for your sacrifice, for being willing to serve others, to create a place where people can come and find community and care and grow. If you're here and you serve in the children's ministry, I want to say thank you for sacrificing for the benefit of others, for giving time to serve children. And by serving those children, you're serving parents so that they can be a part of a worship service. So thank you for sacrificing for the benefit of others. If, you, if you're here and you served as a part of Summer Blast, the, the midweek ministry that's going on all summer, thank you for serving kids in this community so they can come in a positive environment and hear the good news about Jesus Christ. If you're here and you serve in our student ministry, thank you for serving in our student ministry. Thank you for sacrificing for the benefit of others. And listen, this is a big one because, you know, you ask someone, hey, do you want to go hang out with a bunch of middle schoolers? Most people are going to be running and screaming at that moment. There's nothing there that's building your status or your ego. In fact, it's a very vulnerable place to be in working and serving in, with students. But thank you for doing it. I'm always impressed when I see adults that go on to camps um, and serve in, in student ministries and in, in events like that because it so often means that they're giving up vacation time, giving up hours that they could be making money, and, and they're serving students. And there's, there's, they're not doing it for the recognition. They're doing it because they love people, that there's a part, they have a kingdom mindset, that they want the next generation to know and love Jesus. And I love that. If you're, um, uh, there's other ways, and I could keep on going, there's other ways that there's so many ways that here at this church there's a kingdom mindset. And I'll just mention one more, and mention this, that many of you here um, have sacrificed for the benefit of others by laying aside your preferences. Many of you here have laid aside your preference in terms of lots of different things, but one of them is, is worship style. Many of you here have laid aside your preference for worship that really connects with you because you want it to benefit others. Many of you here have said, I'm going to sacrifice what, what really um, is my preference because I recognize there's a next generation that we need to reach 
and I want them to come to church and feel connected and hear music in a way that speaks to their heart. And so for many of you, you sacrifice and you've laid aside your preference. Thank you for doing that. It's powerful. And listen, if you're part of the next generation, understand this, it's a sacrifice. The people here at this church have laid aside their preference for you. So come, grow, invest. They're praying for you. And they're sacrificing for you because they're kingdom-minded. And guess what? At some point, younger generation, you are going to have to sacrifice your preferences for the next generation. We all get to go through this. Where we say, yeah, music, so, you know, some point in the future, you're going to say, this music does not make sense to me, but it does for my grandkids or my kids. And so, hey, I'll sacrifice my preferences for them. It will all happen to all of us. But it's a kingdom mindset that says, I'm willing to do that because I want others and I want the next generation to continue to know who he is. It's for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for that. Now, I'll, I'll, let me go to the next one. The next one is this, celebrate the success of others. This is powerful in terms of the disciples. They got jealous when someone else was, you know, being successful in ministry. And I think one of the, one of the uh, best ways to challenge a jealous heart is to celebrate the success of others. Because what we want to do is, is kind of look down on them. And we do this in lots of different ways as Christians. You know, we can look at other churches and we start to like, you know, make some comments. You know, yeah, they're a mile wide and an inch deep. And we start to like downplay them. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 listen, you're on the same team. Celebrate. If the gospel is being shared and people are coming to know him, let's celebrate that. Let's support it. Let's pray for them. As ministries in the church, let's celebrate what's happening in children's ministry, what's happening in CR, what's happening with, with the, you know, let's, let's support each other. And as Christians, we do, we do get jealous. We're like the disciples. We're not any better than them or different than them. We can get competitive. We can get jealous. And another church is doing well. We're, we struggle with that. But listen, here's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be praying for other churches. When you drive by the church in your neighborhood, a Christian church, pray for them. Be kingdom-minded and say, God, would you use this church to expand your kingdom here in the Tri-Cities? If you know a leader there or a people there, pray that God would be using them to reach people that we can't reach. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a humbling experience and it's an, an important experience to recognize that at harvest, all the grapes get dumped into the same bucket in the end. Do you know that? So it's not about this church or the other church. They all get, they all get brought together at one time. In heaven, it's a fantastic truth. And so there are people that we're going to be able to reach as South Hills Church, but there's going to be people that we can't reach uh, that we want to pray for. And I know that sometimes we think to ourselves, okay, well, we just got to get all the churches together for one big movement, then we'll be most effective. No, it's okay that there's different churches planted in different places because they are going to reach people that we can't reach. And we ought to pray for them. And we got to support them and celebrate them. That's what, that's what he's saying here. Uh, that's why this, uh, this kingdom mindset is so powerful. The third one is this, that they give their best away. Kingdom-minded people give their best away. When you're thinking about your own kingdom, you want to take. You want to hoard. You want to keep things to yourself. That is your kingdom. But when we recognize, no, no, we already have a kingdom mindset that's God's kingdom, we say we give our best away. We give our resources, our time, our people, that we're willing to send our best onto the mission field, that we're willing to send our best into ministries that are not our own because we recognize it's about the kingdom. It's not about my kingdom. 
Then when it comes to our resources, we say, let's be open and share the resources that God has given to us. And I love one of the things, one of the things I love about South Hills Church is you've adopted that mindset when it comes to this building. That on Sunday mornings, right now, right here, there is a, a Sudanese congregation that is worshiping here in our facility. The South Hills Church recognizes there's a, there's a community here that wants to worship, and we have the space. Can we open up a place for them so that they can gather, they can worship? That's a fantastic thing. That we're not holding on to our resources so tightly that we're not willing to invest in the kingdom. And I'll just say this. Will you pray for the Sudanese congregation? Pray for Daoud and the leadership team there because they are going to reach people that we can't reach. But we can support them and we can care for them. We can provide a place for them because they can reach people in their heart language. They can reach people in a way that we just can't, but we love that. And a kingdom mindset says, hey, we give our best away and we're, we want to see God work um, in, uh, in all places, in all ways. We want to celebrate that and we want to support it. Now, Jesus goes on in, this, um, in the next part. And, you're, and I'll, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of, in a certain sense, takes a, a very serious tone. Jesus goes on to teach. He says this in verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Remember, Jesus is still holding a child. And he's saying, listen, if you cause a child to stumble, man, it'd be, it's not going to go well for you. And he expands it to say, any believer, anyone that you cause to stumble, uh, you, you, we, we have to pay very close attention to our influence and our ministry. And if God's placed us in, in environments, we need to pay very close attention to how we use the influence that God has given us. Then he goes on to say this in verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. The principle that I want you to see is this, that we need to learn to surrender your whole life to Christ. Learn to surrender your whole life to Christ. The salting is a part of sacrifice, which is a part of that judgment, to that part where Jesus is, is saying, listen, we gotta look at our own lives. And in terms of how the influence that we have with others, we don't want them to stumble, and we don't want to stumble. So as leaders, we need to look in, and we need to recognize that we need to come to Jesus and surrender our whole lives to him. Why does Jesus go there? Why does he talk about looking at our own lives? I think because in the greater context of this conversation um, of who's the greatest, that what the disciples end up doing in order to elevate themselves to a greater level than the others is they do what we do. If we want to be great, what we end up having to do to someone else is to lower them a little bit. When we want to say, hey, I'm better than you, we have to look down on them. And so I think the disciples do what we do, which we start to say, you know, I really am kind of better than that person over there. You know, they, man, they, man, they, what are they, you know, what are they doing on the weekends? Or, you know, how are they talking to their spouse? And we start to look at other people. When we want to say, hey, we're great, we start to judge 
others. And I think that that probably was happening in the case with the disciples. They're talking about who's the greatest. Someone says to Peter, Peter, you're always putting your foot in your mouth. Someone looks to James and John and says, you guys have an anger problem. Someone looks to Matthew and said, you used to be a tax collector, a traitor. Someone looks to Thomas and says, you always ask annoying questions. And so they're looking at each other and they're putting each other down. And Jesus is bringing it back around and says, you want to be great? Listen, you got to start here first. It's not about judging them. It's about self-judgment. It's about salting yourself with fire. That is saying, God, I need to expose myself to you. Because my influence matters. I, it matters how, I don't want to cause people to stumble. It does not go well for people who are leading others astray or abusing or, or, or hurting them. Jesus has strong words for that. But it also, he has strong words for those who are saying, I know that I have challenges, but I keep doing it. He's saying, you're, you're playing with hellfire here. And it's scary. So he says, listen, salt yourself with fire. Start here. Judge yourself first. Say, God, search me and know me. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And God, if there is, help me with urgency to deal with it, to address it by your grace and your mercy in my life. And so he's talking about, you know, cutting off your hands and your feet and your eyes. And of course, he's not literally saying do those things. But he's saying, hey, if there are certain things in your life that are causing you to sin, that are causing you to stumble, address it. And address it immediately. Don't let it linger. I'll tell you uh, the fuller story at some point in the future, but um, some of you know that our oldest son, Jay, was born with cancer. And um, he was born with a tumor on his ankle, and over time we watched that tumor grow, and we tried to shrink it with chemotherapy, but it continued to um, aggressively grow up his leg. And there came to a point where the doctors are saying, we, we have to deal with this. Uh, and we have to take an aggressive uh, measure. We need, to, we need to amputate his leg. And for Lisa and I, as hard as that was to hear, it really wasn't that hard of a decision. Because when it comes down to, do we want his leg or do we want his life? Okay, get rid of the leg. We want our boy. We want his life. Okay, so amputate. Okay, let's do that. Because we want Jay. And listen, in the same way, Jesus is saying, listen, there's things that are, it's cancer in your heart, in your life, it's polluting you. And, and the, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants that, and he wants it to grow and fester. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to have life. So his discipline, him bringing this up is not to be harsh or mean, but it's at a love. He's saying, listen, be honest with yourself. There's things in our life that we need to address that we need to deal with. If you want to be great, you also have to surrender all parts of your life to him. And it's an ongoing process. Do you know that? This idea of progressive sanctification that God wants to continue to work in our lives, that we have to, that's why I said, learn to continue to surrender our lives to him. Because things, you know, I've dealt with it. All of a sudden, a week later, mm, I'm dealing with it again. God, I gotta resurrender this to you. Oh, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm going to face this thing. Yeah, it's not going to be a problem for anymore. Guess what? It has a tendency to crop back up. Did you know that in an amputation of a, of a child, when you cut off a limb um, and they're growing, their bone is still growing, and what happens is that bone becomes, um, they call it penciling, where it begins to spike because it's not coming out as one 
bone, right? It's, it's coming in jagged ways. And if you don't deal with it, what it will do is it'll, it'll poke through the skin eventually. And so for an amputee as a child, they often have to go in for what they call trimmings, maintenance. They have to come and they have to keep trimming because there's, there's jagged parts that still poke out as the bone continues to grow. And I think that's true in our lives as well. Where we have to say, God, I, I need to learn to surrender this because it's, it's cancer in my life. But I also may need to come back to you and say, God, I need you still. It's not a one-time surrendering to God, but I need to walk with you, and I need your Holy Spirit to work in me and transform me in an ongoing way, but I walk with him in that. And here's the thing. Jesus is faithful. He doesn't, um, he doesn't push us away when we come to him. In fact, he wants to help us. We know that because he went to the cross for us. When we were rebelling and rejecting him, he, he came to serve us. He sacrificed himself for us so that we can call on him and say, God, I need life. I'm dying here. My sin is polluting me. It's corrupting me, and it's causing me to stumble, and it's causing others to stumble. So, Lord, will you do a work that only you can do? And that's what he did on the cross. And we continue to come to him and say, Lord, humbly, we walk with you. We surrender ourselves to you. That you would continue to transform us, make us more and more like you so that you can use us to have influence and impact in the world for you. This is the good news that we get to rest in, that we get to cling to, and that we get to come to God and say, God, thank you for your grace in our lives. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. God, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful that you didn't come to be served, but you came to serve that your leadership was so counter-cultural. You didn't come with military might or political power. You came with love. You came to serve. You came to sacrifice. And it changes everything. Lord, we're thankful that you didn't reject us, but that you were willing to sacrifice yourself for us. So, Lord, we humbly come before you and we ask that you would um, heal us. That as we surrender these parts of our lives to you, there's, all, there's pieces for each and every one of us. We recognize there's, there's places we can't go. There's certain people we can't be with. There's certain things that we can't hold on to that we just need to surrender them to you so that you would purify us, that you would transform us so that we could live a life that honors you and makes a difference in the world around us. God, we thank you.